Hello and welcome to the IWIB Female Factor Podcast. IWIB stands for International Women in Business. We are a network based in Stockholm, Sweden, and every month we'll have a guest. These are businessmen, businesswomen, professionals, business leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs from different countries and industries who will share their career journeys and unique perspectives with us. They will also share who are the women behind their success, which we call the female factor. Welcome. Welcome to the IWIB Talks and Podcast. Today I am honored to introduce you to Shan Mili. She is joining us from London and she will talk about her latest book, the Artificial Intelligence Book, a handbook for investors, entrepreneurs, and fintech visionaries. Sean is what she calls herself an accidental techie. She's also the founder of the Bright Blue Hair, co-founder of Innovation and Culture Lead at Green Kite, and the co-host of the Her Story podcast, Powered by Digital Women. Besides that, she's a keynote speaker, panel host, mentor, and the list goes on. Sean, welcome to the IWIB. So much, and um, I feel really honored and privileged to be, to be welcomed into the IWIB family. Um, and thank you so much, Tati, for persevering with me and my crap association with the 24-hour clock, by the way. Um, so yeah, just so today, um, I'm gonna talk to you about where the AI book came from and, and why, really. Um, and uh, yeah, just to give, I think, to relate that to some of the things that um, anybody in business, but anybody in financial services, particularly, and technology, um, these are the issues that we should be thinking about. So the stuff that we were putting together and thinking about when the AI book sort of started, and I'll talk to you about that a little bit more in a minute, because I think it's interesting to know where it came from and what drove it and how it was put together. There were issues then that we, I thought particularly I was worried about, I could see, that have actually just consolidated and got even more important over the past couple of years um, since that project started. So um, just a little bit about me then. My God, yeah, portfolio career basically means I spent 28 years in my in senior corporate leadership uh, working myself to an absolute frazzle, um, having lots of fun, of course, and achieving stuff, but really slogging my guts out. I'm, I'm 53, so... I grew up my, I grew up in a world where the world of work, you know, it was quite clear about the kinds of things that you needed to do. And uh, that was working for somebody else. Uh, so I did my 28 years. I take lots away from that, particularly getting interested and involved and obsessed with insurance from about 2008. Um, but then, yes, yes, a portfolio career basically means I'm trying to find lots of as many ways as possible to make a difference and make a living, ladies. So, um, yeah, it's a work in progress, although Bright Blue Hair, my little business, um, is unbelievably going to go into its sixth year on the 1st of June. I still can't quite believe I'm still able to make a living and doing stuff, actually. Um, but there you go. Yeah, thanks so much for, for that lovely label, um, Tassie. So um, why insurance? I think that is really important too, as a context for the, the AI book. So um, I think for people who, who are not familiar with the insurance sector, it, it, it looks and sounds and is talked about continuously as something very boring, very slow moving, um, and not particularly interesting. Well, I see it from a different perspective. I see insurance as a, as a social utility. It has a social purpose because 
if you have a moment of vulnerability or catastrophe in your life, as an individual, as a small business, as a medium-sized business, as a huge business, as a sovereign nation, for instance, with regard to cat catastrophe and the stuff around climate change that we're all beginning to see much more clearly now as well, you absolutely need to have a mechanism to manage that risk and to get you back on your feet. And mechanisms for risk that are also, that work for you, that you understand and that are priced appropriately. And obviously those businesses, also need to generate profit and return for all their shareholders. So I think anyone interested in how value is really created for individual individuals working in a business, because of course, employee, colleague, I hate the word employee, but colleague and people are now something that we're talking about a lot, finally, in financial services, particularly. If you're interested in that, and you're interested in how you create value for customer and create value for stakeholder and shareholder, Insurance has got it all, really, um, particularly in the UK, um, because that's the bit I know well. So it might apply to other um, areas as well. So you've got a real mixture of business sizes. So micro businesses right the way up to enormous gargantuan multinationals that, that spread the world. You've got all kinds of different people, um, personalities. I find people really fascinating. Yes. So, um, uh, you know, that's interesting, too. It's a very complicated value chain. So if you like to kind of have your head going like this while you're trying to understand stuff, which which I do, yeah. there's loads to run out in, um, in insurance. Um, so I think, and it's a highly regulated sector as well, which means that, that again, there's complexity there. There's, there's also debates to really shape things for a long uh, way forward. And um, from a legacy perspective, particularly as we're talking now increasingly about um, digital conduct and the sh future shape of the financial regulatory system. So I think it's got something for everybody. And, and particularly if you're interested in data and ethics, my goodness, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's something where, as I say, I think it's got something for everybody. And if you're interested in big things like technology and leadership and culture and, um, and, and also fundamentally for me, because uh, when I was thinking about, you know, trying to tell you stuff without taking up the entire 20 minutes, um, I, uh, what, I, what I landed on was actually, as businesses, we spend a lot of time, we don't necessarily talk about it like this, but we spend a lot of time wondering why people don't do what we want them to do. So that's either the customer or our colleagues. I've, I've been a manager, I've built and led teams, and, and I took my line management responsibility very seriously. And, and it was really tough a lot of the time. And then, you know, a lot of a conversation about how do we make customers loyal? How do we own the customer? It's, it's all about trying to really understand humans and make them do what we want to do. And, and again, we, uh, we may not use that language, but actually in a business context, in a managerial context, I think that's quite a lot of what the debate is about. So the AI book then. Just remember that bit about how do we make humans do what we want them to do? So uh, going back then to June, July 2018, just published the InsureTech book that had come out into the world after two years. And that was something that I co-edited and I designed um, with FinTech Circle, Suzanne Shishti at FinTech Circle, as part of a series of books that were looking at tech. So the InsureTech book was my first um, collaboration with um, Suzanne. We published that. It was great. Um, you know, it was being sold and people were talking about it. And I distinctly remember thinking, okay, 
yes, that's great. But actually, what we really need to be doing now is, is AI. Because if you think back to the mid-2018, Cambridge Analytica scandal was just sort of growing, okay? Fe worries about Facebook and language like um, surveillance capitalism was just starting to bubble up. Up until that point, really, big tech had had it all its own way. Um, all anyone wanted to talk about was how you got data and how you used it. Um, those of us who were thinking, yeah, but why actually? And um, how does this fit with uh, consumer privacy, consumer and data security? What's now called those ethical considerations wasn't really part of the conversation. So bearing in mind that my perspective always is, I, I think about the humans sat around the board table in, in insurance firms of, of these various sizes, but particularly the huge firms. Um, I've actually seen the size of a board pack that an individual sat on an insurance, a large insurance firm. I mean, I have, they didn't let me look at it, I hasten to add, but I've seen the size of it. And when you think about what those humans literally have to work their way through, but also the significance of the decisions that they're being asked to make. And although they are, you know, when you get to that kind of level, even as an independent Ned, um, you're going to have technical specialisms that make you an expert in your own area. But in today's world, it is absolutely impossible, first of all, for anyone to be an expert in everything, particularly when it relates to technology. And secondly, um, they are technical experts in how to run bits of an insurance business or a whole insurance business. You're not going to get technical technology experts um, or that level of knowledge spread evenly around that board table. And yet they're still making decisions. And, and this is where one of the benefits of being slightly older comes to comes to the fore, because back in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, I was, uh, my first career was as publishing director in business to business publishing, so for financial services. So that was all about understanding every area of financial services um, in series, really, and uh, trying to create, innovate, we didn't use words like that back then, but innovate and create new products to basically make people spend more money with the business I was in than, than anybody else. So I, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, I was in a, I was specializing in derivatives, financial derivatives, financial risk engineering. And you people may remember a company called Enron that had an, a, a seamless trajectory. It was the it was something that everybody wanted to be, do, copy, invest in, work for. I see many similarities with between that that kind of cycle and the cycles that I see around big tech and um, an AI. And then all of a sudden, it felt like, oh dear, there's actually nothing behind this. All this clever, impenetrable language actually was hiding what was essentially, to my mind, a pyramid scheme. And it, it, that world seemed to go pop overnight. So, and that, that had a direct impact on, on our business as people that specialize in derivatives, because suddenly Enron had been spending huge amounts of money sponsoring staff you know huge conference businesses were formed on the back of Enron's marketing spend right it disappeared and it and it really damaged um the I suppose the the what trust there was in something corporate end users of derivatives couldn't understand in the first place what trust there was disappeared and it's and that was you know 20 25 years ago 
So I, I carry this around with me as an example of if you don't understand what your business is, fundamentally sat around that boardroom if you don't understand what you're buying and why you're buying it and what you're making and why you're making it and you can't explain that to your customers either without rolling out very clever people who talk academic language um, and your beautiful and it all makes sense but you can't understand it as the boardroom uh, the person sat around that table you know, not only two things, not only do you not have personal accountability and understanding of what your decisions actually mean in practical terms to your customers and your colleagues, because remember, pretty much 95% of everyone that worked for Enron, and we're talking about normal people, not just people on multi-million dollar packages, invested their pensions in Enron. So when Enron went bang, hundreds of thousands of people ended up with nothing. So if you, if you, that personal accountability of really understanding the impact of what you're deciding on your colleagues, on your people, but also on customer, you know, that gap between your working technical understanding of what you're doing as a business and what that means, that lets people off the personal accountability, which they shouldn't be let off, I, I believe, as leaders. Um, but also you're putting individuals in a very difficult situation because they may very well want to do the right thing. But if they don't know enough and there's this unstoppable train, which again is what I saw with AI, I saw an unstoppable train. I observed the usual kind of, with due respect to any consultancy colleagues, the usual kind of sales pitch of FOMO, which we see from consultancies all the time. Do this or you're dead. You must do this. You must catch up. You must hire 20,000 data scientists. Even if you don't actually know why they're there, you must do it. All of the usual stuff, and particularly with quoted companies, as we know, because, you know, analysts make decisions on stuff that, you know, um, may not necessarily ultimately make sense, right? With all due respect to analyst colleagues as well, because I think obviously they're very clever people with lots of um, very difficult decisions to make. So that was my, I'm sat thinking, we've got this successful book. Let's let's go back, um, Suzanne um, of FinTech Circle, let's go back to Wiley and say, right, we need now to do something on AI and financial services because everybody's talking about it. The train is rolling. I am worried about the individuals working in financial services firms that will be asked to make decisions that will be have decisions put upon them who will be asked to build businesses on the basis of technology they don't understand enough and those boardroom decisions as well and also on the flip side you know with a slightly less kind of gloomy perspective i guess there is huge scope for it for to do great stuff with technology fantastic so let's make sure that the people who really understand the problems to be solved, really understand enough about the technology so that they can contribute and start not be the passive recipients of something that's innovated over there by people who have no idea really what customer challenges because the last time they saw a customer was probably 20 years ago um, because of the way that people get promoted and you know the way that we reward people and, and so forth. You, you know, you don't get rewarded for spending your time with customer. Those people are the lowest paid people in most organizations, which I think is bonkers, but that's just the way it is. So that's where the AI book came from. And then the principles, I guess, that that Suzanne and I, and you can tell I'm you know passionate about pretty much everything, but I'm particularly passionate about these technology is not a discussion it is not a domain for people who got degrees in computing or coding 
it's too big for that. It impacts too much of everybody's lives. That I describe myself as an accidental techie. The accidental is kind of because I didn't know this was where I was going to end up finding my purpose and my passion, but I have. But also because I am, as we were talking about with the 24-hour clock, I don't consider myself a particularly technically proficient person, right? But what I think is very important is that for, for the business, so and by that I mean people who are expert in other domains but wouldn't call themselves data scientists, wouldn't call themselves um, technologists, you have to understand, you have to have a working understanding and your technical colleagues need to prioritise giving you that technical understanding and not saying, which some of them do, not all, but some of them saying, don't worry, love, you'll never get it. You, you, I'll tell you what to do. You just implement it in the business or even worse. Yeah, come back and talk to me when you've done a coding course. Really? OK, now back in 2018, this 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 ethics thing this these kinds of discussions were just bubbling but they really weren't fashionable and so when when i when i was putting together the designing the framework for the ai book um for the wiley pitch because obviously you have to pitch to get them to, to publish stuff i absolutely knew that we were going to have a whole chapter devoted to ethics and and that there was a kind of yes we need to do this because I predict by the time this book is published and this type of thing takes about two years from start to finish. By the time this is published, this is not going to be the preserve of, of worried people like Sean Milley. This is going to be something front and centre in debates about the social utility and social license of technology and issues of trust in financial services. Now, I, I don't pretend to be a massive visionary. What I am really good at, though, is um, you know setting out to read the contrarian viewpoints of the time, and the contrarian viewpoints of the time were people like Timnit Gebru at Google, were people like Joy Buellamwini um, looking at facial recognition, um, looking at the ethicists, the, the the women and men, but lots of women actually, which is quite nice for us for a change. Um, talking about digital ethics and, and really trying to get people to think about why they're doing what they're doing and also looking for standards and guidelines. So, so that's where that sort of drive came from. It was to give those human beings and financial services companies working understanding both of the constellation of technologies that AI is made up of of, of ideas from people who'd been thinking, well, how does this relate to wealth management? What, how does this relate to payments? What are the use cases um, in health insurance? Um, to give them, you know, to, to, to hopefully shortcut their, some of their education and information journey, um, but also to, to give voice to a diversity of views. So, so one of the things we were absolutely certain about was we were going to be, and we were going to apply bias and we were going to say, actually, do you know what? Part of the issue with algo driven business business decision making is that there are too few women involved full stop in designing, creating and reviewing algorithms. Right. There's a there's a massive imbalance there, um, which, again, is now being talked about very openly. It was only just starting in 2018. So where we have. So, so the process, just let me wind back very slightly. The process with this type of book is uh, what Suzanne calls crowdsourcing. Um, so FinTech Circle have a massive um, uh, network. 
and we all obviously have personal networks as well. We go out to this network and say, we want, we're, we're producing this book, in this case, the AI book, send in some synopsis. So very brief kind of, this is what I think I would like to write about. That then gets voted on by the community and the co-editors. So, so myself, Suzanne, and I found, I went out and found um, Ivana Bartoletti, who's a, who's a, a very well-known digital ethicist, and Anne Leslie, who was um, into cybersecurity and also ethics as well from that point of view, create the, the co-editor group because you need four people um, because there's a lot of stuff to read okay, in the publishing process. Um, and we, we took the votes of the jury of the, of the network, but also our own fitting into the structure that we wanted and the, and the choices we made were if we had two pieces where one was by a bloke and one was by a woman and they in all other respects were equally great. We chose the woman, the woman in order to make sure that we had a minimum 40, 60, the, the guy still got 60% because that's, you know, that's just a fact of life. But so that we then had that, that gender balance. We also were passionate about having a geographical diversity as well. Too much gets written out of London. Too much gets written out of the usual places. We wanted to have the, the diversity of perspective there as well. And so that's that's how it came to be. And then, you know, there's a process where people write, um, you read everything, and then it goes into the publishing machine and out it popped in uh, May 2020. So that was the journey of the AI book, where it came from and what it was meant to do and, um, you know, how we put it together. You are a true visionary. I mean, this is um, so relevant, especially when the European Commission just released their proposal, you know, on April 23rd. Did you did you include the discussion about the, the high-level group that the EU was having with these white papers on AI? We in the um, in the ethics chapter, and it's a nice big chapter as well. I think there's probably eight or nine really lovely contributions there. I mean, just fantastic from all different angles. Um, the regulatory, and we also had a chapter on legal and regulatory as well. So we knew that some, obviously, the, the people that really know about the, the way the EU is looking at stuff, and I'm an enthusiastic amateur, I have to say, but I am so delighted that we've got this legislation and the Wild West is over. We're beginning to categorise AI now, right? And so that I think that can only be good for responsible technology and responsible financial services. Um, but so there was there was definitely talk uh, around why we would we'd need such legislation and what this legislation might look like. But of course, back in when this was being written, that was it was we knew there was a time frame. The writers knew that it was coming, but the detail there was lacking. So a lot of it was speculative and a lot of it was also this is what we really need from the perspective of people who really are expert in um, how you set standards, how you set guidelines, how you look at regulation. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wannabe regulatory geek as well. I think it really matters, but I'm certainly not expert. And, and the people that the women actually were a lot of women, um, who were writing in that section. Yeah, it was definitely basically saying, you know, change is coming be on the right side of the change. And here's how you can do this. Because again, the context is really important here. When we were writing and putting this stuff together, there were no rules. It was literally all about how much data can you get and how quickly can you use it? And, and even basic understanding like, you know, algorithms actually are a process, they're not a product. So, you, you know, let's, let's just say for the sake of argument, 
you do all the right stuff around designing the algo in the first place all the right stuff and there's a massive list there okay just for the sake of argument let's just say that happens you push that out into the world you literally have no idea what's going to happen you don't you can't predict it it's not like an equation it doesn't work that way and i think there's a you know normal business people you know we're kind of as usual you know baffled and blinded by the oh my god i could never i could never create an algorithm you don't have to but you do need to understand the the, the essential ground rules here and the impacts it could have on your customers and and i do think tati actually the other big thing that's happened is that we've as as almost as society we've had about 10 15 years living with the impacts of big tech and algo driven business because of course google and facebook it's all about algorithms right okay fine so when you i think that genuinely and i'm not being trite here when george floyd was shot and black lives matter really started and it and it kind of it crystallized it catalyzed it brought massive social discontent and inequality to, to into a, into a big conversation that was virtually global part of that was was also bringing allowing and giving a platform to all the guys and gals particularly in the background the people who are the algorithmic experts people who do write algorithms who do understand how this works for them to say we've been telling the people using this technology and selling this technology for years that it doesn't work facial recognition doesn't work for people of color it's being bought and used and in law enforcement particularly which is one of the reasons why i think the the eu legislation has been able to say no it's prohibited it's being used in law enforcement and it doesn't work it mm. doesn't work and not only that it ends up with people of color being killed i mean you know yeah. talk about talk about a product recall mm. yes of course if you if you inadvertently poison people through producing something that's got you know a, either an allergy an well, unintended harm but it was biased from the get-go you know well, it, it's it's more shocking it because the voices the expert voices were there saying this doesn't work and so I think the other thing that I see as a general trend, actually, in corporate world is is civic activism and the ability of civic activists to tell data led stories persistently, consistently and really engagingly. And I think this is new. And to a certain extent, I think that's the one of the real benefits of social media. Actually, I love the data led stories. First time I hear that. Yeah. But it's it's quite a common way of talking um, in data science. I mean, they talk about it all the time. Um, whether they do it or not is is you know, uh, and and who are they telling the story for, and how do they know when they've told the story? Um, well, fine, okay, but that data-led storytelling um, is basically, isn't it? It's evidence after evidence after evidence, right? So mm -hmm. I I think. Um, the Algorithmic Justice League is one really brilliant example. I think um, the recent um, unionization within Google, so so that that union and the way that they are telling the story, I, I think so. So I maybe I yeah, this is where my definite bias comes into play. I think corporates have had it their own way for far too long in many, many ways. And 
clearly we know that regulating digital world is very tough and our regulators aren't funded sufficiently. Um, they don't have enough time to do this, but hopefully that is now changing too. We need to catch up. We're, we're behind the curve. We're using technology more than we really understand what that means. And that's really dangerous. I'm not talking about the singularity. I mean, you know, when you start talking about AI, people want to take you off in all kinds of directions. That's very interesting, but I'm more concerned about the impact on human beings who are trying to find cover and protection now. The impact on human beings who are being put through recruitment processes using dodgy technology because it's dodgy. It doesn't work and we don't know. We don't know how to stop it either, Tati, because once that once you're in a, re a return, if you like, from that algorithmic analysis, can I stop it? Can I do I even know it's happening? Have I licensed you to do that? And, and, and if you even say, yes, this is how this is how we've used the data, Sean, this is where it's gone and it will have gone everywhere in a nanosecond. Mm. Can you get it back? Can you change it? Where's the liability? Where's the redress? There isn't. And, and I kind of feel like we wouldn't do this. I mean, we did do it, didn't we? We did it with tobacco and we did it with alcohol as a society, right? We got very excited. It all felt brilliant. And then it took us a while to work out that actually, for society's sake, we have to do something about this because at the end of the day, economically, it's costing more money than it's worth. Um, and actually, people don't like it. And, it. and it starts to really impact on trust. And I kind of feel like technology is the same kind of thing yes of course it has the, has the the capability to create lots of good and people and, and lots of good on all kinds of levels including making people happy right but it's not good enough it's not good enough just to say we'll let it play out we'll let it work out although i think that's what's happened but i think it has changed now and those what i'm calling those civic activists their voices are that they know how to engage they have social media has given a platform which means you don't have to have a massive PR department. What you have is purposeful, passionate people who know what they're talking about and who understand how to tell stories using data. Because again, I, I just, and I'm guilty of this, you know, um, I do understand, believe it or not, that being passionate and eloquent and being able to paint the dark side and bash people over the head with what they're doing wrong, it might make you feel good, but it doesn't actually get change. Um, and so I think, you know, people like, I would point out people like the Algorithmic Justice League, I would point out um, people like Ensure Our Future, who are, um, who used to be known as Unfriend Coal. So their, their whole purpose in life is to stop insurance companies underwriting infrastructure projects that, that will contribute to climate change. And, and they're very good at it. And I just think corporates need to I think the greenwashing and the ethics washing and the uh, believe us, everything's going to be fine. It's obviously still working to an extent, but I, I don't think it's a safe business strategy to to build, you know, the next five or 10 years on. If, if, if you know, if anyone's listening to me, I, I, I really don't. Sean, this book, I think, is uh, is a very, very useful thing for entrepreneurs and, you know, investors and, of course, fintech. Uh, insurance companies to to have so the timing is perfect 
so many things have happened, as we saw, you know, with uh, Floyd's death and um, the ethical AI trend now. So thank you so much for the presentation of this book. We will take questions now. Maggie will help me with that. And I mean, if I just could applaud, thank you. Thank you for being here, taking the time and sharing your knowledge and your passion about this subject. You're really welcome. Um, I'm going to pause now so we can take the questions. Shan, thank you so much. That was a really good presentation, very useful. And as our member said, very easy to understand. So now let's do the podcast part. Please take us to the journey from where were you born until today writing this book. You have a long, long career, which is now turning a portfolio career. You're an influencer. You are a podcast host. You are a founder. You, please tell me. Uh, yes, and we've got a short time to do it in Tati, so I've got to be yes. quick, haven't I? Uh, so <laughs> it's only two questions, so go ahead. Okay, so the important thing, I think, really, uh, about where I was born and... Country you have lived or worked with? Yeah, no, I think the, the born bit for me is really important because it's really shaped a huge amount of my life and who I am. Um, because I was born very poor, very poor, and um, in a rural area of the UK... And, and quite a long time ago as well. Uh, so pre-internet and all of that stuff, right? Um, and, and that when I think that it's given me a huge amount of shaping forces in my life, not least that I think it's, it, it is absolutely imperative to share and to grow and to grasp that just because you're born into a certain life, you don't have to stay there. That's the first thing. What's that about? Well, some of it's about grit and determination. Some of that, some of it is about who you are, but a huge amount of that is about access to education. Education is the gateway to opportunity and the right kind of education. So high quality education and high quality meaning by people who care, who are skilled about the stuff that's actually gonna engage your brain and your creativity, as well as give you the tools to live in the world. What's missing from the educational system that would have really helped me, I think, um, and still is missing now, is financial education. And I think in today's world, it's even more necessary that we give our children the skills from a very early age to understand money, um, to understand what it means, how you can use it, to understand also the, the financial world that they're living in. So I worry. I really do worry about buy now, pay later. Uh, there's no education around that. I mean, quite frankly, there's no bloody regulation either, and there needs to be. But I think those kinds of skills, anyway, so for education for me um, was, was a game changer in my whole life. It took me into a different world. It gave me the language and structure and ability. It gave me physical safety as well, actually, being at school. Um, but it enabled me to have critical thinking skills. It, I think I had natural communication skills, but certainly the education processes gave me the confidence, the language, the grammar, the license to learn how to communicate. And that's been, and we need to give that opportunity to everyone, regardless of the circumstances they're born in. So that kind of, you know, don't be set in concrete. Your destiny is not set. Some of it is to do with you, but actually the other big lesson was I needed support and community. I found people and women all the way through my career, Tati, 
who've helped me. And I think that give and take and that reaching out for community and reaching out for help, obviously you, you have to develop, you know, good skills to determine where you can trust people. And I wasn't brilliant at that to begin with. Um, and that's, you know, that's tough lessons, but that's that's the lessons of life. But I think that community and groups like this, Tati, you know, safe spaces to have conversations with people that you don't necessarily know, but you would love to know on the basis of what you see and hear, different experiences and diversity and diversity in reality. So not just as a tick box, but as different ways of thinking and creativity and questioning. So. You know, this whole thing around technology that I've built and value generation in technology, which is where I spent a lot of my time in, in, in this part of my working life, is really, you know, asking questions in response to being told this is absolutely the case. But you started as a historian. So take us to that switch in your journey. Yeah. So, so education, right? Yeah. So I got I, I did my degree in history because I loved history I, and, I, and I knew that I had to do it do something I love to get through for three years. Then I needed to get a job, Tati. So as, an, as a, an arts graduate in, when was it, 1989, you know, genuinely, you had, I felt, stupidly, you had two, two choices, HR or publishing. It just so happened that I got a job in publishing first. And it was in publishing that I found my, my, my first purpose, if you like, which is taking the ideas of really clever people and helping them to turn it into something that other people could understand and engage with and learn from and use and that's a constant another constant thread through my career so so being around you know really brilliant people who have technical you know understanding to the max but who aren't necessarily that great at taking that message out and sharing it um, and, and actually the business, the publishing business is a really tough, demanding, again, you know, back then we didn't talk about innovation and value proposition, but it is really tough and demanding. It's very difficult to make money in business to business publishing. Even then it was difficult. So as a grounding for how to create proposition, um, manage business, you know, I remember doing national insurance calculations in one of my jobs you know I, I mean you learn absolutely everything about how to create a business from the ground up and then um, because I majored in financial services that then took me into environments where you know these were big companies I was running big portfolios I was creating big big teams it was at the beginning of technology so I can remember one of my one of my biggest transformational jobs was taking a very successful business that I'd grown as a, a technical book publisher financial services and derivatives um, and to make creating a website that was a bloody big deal in 2000 let me tell you 21 years ago so that that technology is an essential enabler to to me building businesses but also understanding how that impacts in financial services those were roots right the way back there as well and so um work you know a, a portfolio of things uh, by portfolio i mean you know serial jobs in that world operating at a very senior level, um, increasingly distanced from customer, because that's kind of what happens if you don't try and work very hard at it. And then coming into insurance as, as a publishing gig in 2008. And that was, you know, that was five years of really hard work. I fell in love with my brand. I fell in love with the, with the topic. I fell in love with the gig of turning something around and making it amazing. And then having done that, I suppose I, I, a whole series of other things around um, being more confident about my own values and 
not seeing my job anymore as um, trying to make sense of corporate values that for me were either just inco incoherent, didn't make sense, weren't sensible, or I didn't understand them or just didn't agree with them. You know, when you're in a leadership position there, um, in, in, in that kind of situation, you do feel it's your job to kind of take that stuff and turn it into something that means something through your own lens and try and create your kind of bubble of sanity in your own area. Well, I worked very hard at that and I, and I did it very well, but I got knackered. I just got tired of it. And also at that point, um, you know, 20, 2014, 2015 thinking, this isn't enough. It isn't enough for me anymore. I need to find a purpose. And that's why I decided to go independent. And through that whole process of working out um, that intersection between what do I want to do? Where can I make a difference and where can I make a living? That's where, you know, you kindly refer to it as a portfolio career, Tati. It's, it's basically following my heart and my passion and, um, you know, meeting, going out to really learn about areas and really meet people and diverse views and thoughts and then collaboration for change. I mean, I think that's really important. So when you find like-minded people who, who see the world similarly, or at least see the same kind of challenges, they may have very different ways of going about solving those challenges, but it's coming together as a group that really makes change. And so that's where, you know, the things that I'm involved with now in tech nation and inclusion and, and that sort of thing came, came out of that, came out of that, those drivers really. But you're a sponge, you have absorbed the best that you have gotten in your corporate world. And I think you, you, you put it into your own ethos in your company, you know, and in the, the things that you do and this collaborative leadership that, that I'm crazy about, you know, that's why I approached you and, and we started this collaboration. But to, to, to finalize our episode, because I know you have to go in five minutes, who have been the women that have supported you that, that I call the female factor? Can you mention one, and then we close with the last thought for the listener? I, 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 well, that mentioning one is really hard. Okay, but but actually, more. But but um, I think I learned from every single woman that that I was who was my boss, who was my coworker, who was my colleague, who was a direct report. Every single one of them finding a woman one single woman would just be impossible to stand out from that journey well you're lucky right? i have guests that have said that no woman have inspired them or helped them good, so good, you're good very one. lucky i well uh, yeah I, i i find that extraordinary but there you go um i think the women so there are some women in my life right now so one of them is kate bond who's also who introduced us and Kate and I have um, are working together on a project around fintech leadership. So that, and she's keeping me going. I think I'm keeping her going because it's a bit of a slog at the moment. Um, I think the, the in the consumerist customer world, uh, Leo Miles, who's the head of um, financial policy at Macmillan, taught me so much about the realities of exclusion, Tati, seriously. I mean, I thought growing up poor, I knew everything there was to know about exclusion. No, I didn't know everything there was to know about exclusion, particularly as it relates to financial services. Um, and I think, yeah, just yesterday, you were kind enough to mention her story, the podcast I co-host with um, a digital uh, grassroots, it's not restricted to financial services, it's digital skills across the board. Um, just yesterday, I we, we um, interviewed uh, a woman called Andrea Dunlop, who's a pioneer in payments and pay tech. 
and um uh, you know i've known andrea for a couple of years but we learned stuff on that podcast yesterday that not only had i not known about her but that genuinely made me cry not on the podcast i managed to hold it all in until the end but those if i had to you know you're putting me on the spot right now and of course tatty by the way what you're doing with iwib you know oh. that is inspirational darling seriously well, and all you. the women here no it's a really really is inspirational isn't it oh. so thank you so much for that and the last thought for those listening where's the takeaway from you the takeaway um well i think it's that values piece really isn't it again had so at the age of 53 where i feel like i've found my purpose and found a lot more confidence in my own judgment and what i think is right i'm not saying i'm of the finished article by any means but really different to the 20s and 30s and even the 40s which was a fab decade actually for me um your values are your values understand them they will change over time things will change but those core fundamental things that what you think is right and when your internal radar is going i'm not sure about this this doesn't feel right um that should trump everything else if at all possible um because life circumstances obviously sometimes make it really difficult for us to make the quotes the right decision that we know is right but yeah that's that's the takeaway i think try you know work really hard to understand and articulate your own values and then believe in them they're yours they matter shamili thank you so much for being with the iwb film factor podcast it was a pleasure thank you so much for having me tati it was absolutely lovely thank you so much thank you for listening to learn more about this episode you can read the description or you can also go to our website www.iwib.online you can also follow us on instagram at iwib business network until next time